I pledge allegiance to my refrigerator warranty and to the refrigerator for which it stands. One cooling unit under electric power, indivisible from the side-by-side freezer with cold drinks and frozen TV dinners for all. Welcome to This Week of Common Sense, starring Paul Jacob. This is the weekend podcast that recaps the big stories of the week, especially as they appear on thisiscommonsense.org, which is where Paul has been writing commentary since 1999. So, this will come out on July 4th. Paul, what is the big uh, common sense take on Independence Day? The whole idea of Independence Day really, to me, dovetails with this commentary, which I actually, uh, we, we, we kind of punched it up a little bit for today or for yesterday, but I'd written back in 2011 because so many people are, you know, love the Pledge of Allegiance, think everybody should, should have to say it or should certainly want to say it all the time. You know, I'm sure they think it's awfully silly to pledge allegiance to your refrigerator or your refrigerator warranty. But I see the Pledge of Allegiance as the same sort of silly, pledging allegiance to a republic that we created um, or to the flag that represents that republic seems to me to be not just silly, but off. Off because, you know, the whole idea of allegiance dates back to feudal times and the, you know, the uh, being a serf, uh, you know, and it, and it's the sort of thing that <clears throat> the American Revolution was the most effective and world, you know, shattering action against that. Uh, the Declaration of Independence for you know any failing you can you can you know herald and and uh, shout about for this country, and there's been a zillion of them, and they continue to this day. And in fact, part of the whole goal of this podcast and all the agitation that people like me and people who agree with me or disagree with me do is because we want to keep making it better, because we have to, because we're not there. And frankly, I think we all recognize we'll never be completely there. But the Declaration of Independence and the idea both that all men are created equal, which is attached to the idea that all men, all men and women, have inalienable rights. It's such a stark break from the old world and kings and, and frankly, that, that battle between human beings have rights and they should be in control of their own government which leads us to democratic processes and leads us to Republican systems like constitutions that protect those rights. Um, that's what, what July 4th is all about uh, because the Declaration of Independence, Independence Day, is every individual in America, in the world, in the universe, able to say, I am my own person, I have rights, I'm not beholden, I don't have to pledge allegiance to anybody. Now, when the, when the framers of the Declaration, when the Continental Congress representatives voted for the Lee Resolution, the 
couple days earlier. Uh, and then it was announced on the 4th. They voted on the 2nd. Of course, John Adams always thought the 2nd is going to be the holiday. He was wrong. He was wrong about a few things. But the um, with this declaration, um, you know, it's, it's just a huge break uh, from, from what's happened. And, of course, this declaration needs to be made again. Uh, the... The last commentary we will talk about today uh, will be about Hong Kong. And uh, see my shirt, Free Hong Kong? Uh, happens to be the shirt, we'll get to this uh, in more detail, but happens to be the shirt that the first person arrested under the national security law was wearing. Um, little tidbit there. But what are they trying to do but declare the same thing? That they get to have democracy, that we get to choose our leaders, that we get to be in control of government. So, you know, Independence Day is just my, my favorite holiday, the most wonderful message. But you would think then a lot of people who are patriotic then like the Pledge of Allegiance. And I don't like it. And I don't like it both because of the history, but more importantly, and I'll, I'll mention the history here in a second, but more importantly, because it gets us away from treating our system of government in the right way. We are not about how we owe certain allegiance to the state. We are about writing laws that dictate very clearly what states, what, what powers the state has, what, what rights we have and freedoms, and we ought to look at that more as a warranty, meaning here's what it says right here, and by golly, we're going to enforce it, than as some kind of vague concept, of, you know, a bunch of flowery words that really kind of end up at the same place as most societies, which is the government's in charge, and you better do what you're told. And maybe you get to vote for certain things, maybe you don't. You know, maybe you have a certain level of freedom, maybe you don't, but you're not the creator of the government. You are not the government. And of course, when you are the creator of the government, when you are the government, when you're the sovereign, well, then it's awfully silly to pledge allegiance to yourselves. Let's read the contract. Let's read what I'll call the freedom warranty, and let's enforce it. Let's make our government adhere to the contract. And uh, it, it's no lack of patriotism. It's no lack of emotion and love for the country. Because I love this country. I love what it is attempting to be. I love the people who live here. There's a few exceptions. But, but I love you, ultimately. It could just shape up. But... It, it, there's no lack of any of that, but there is a an ought to be a stone cold, sober look at what government is supposed to be, and we want that warranty enforced. That's what the Constitution is. And how often in these days do people treat the Constitution as something like that? Oh, they've got all kinds of theories about how to interpret it. I want it interpreted in black and white as it's written. And uh, so anyway, 
that's that's critical. And then, of course, the more you know about the history of the Pledge of Allegiance, the less you like it. For instance, uh, the Pledge of Allegiance was written by a socialist, Francis Bellamy, in 1892. And, you know, his whole concept of the state is a lot different than the concept that the framers of the Constitution and the and the uh, folks meeting in Philadelphia and meeting uh, uh, to to ratify a break from Great Britain um, had of, of government. But he also had something which just shows that uh, truth is much stranger oftentimes than fiction. Francis Bellamy also had something called the Bellamy Salute. And apparently this was part of the flag code for a long time. Uh, but the Bellamy salute was supposed to be some, you know, salute you give the flag. And it turns out it was the same salute that Mussolini and the Italian fascists adopted. And it's the same salute that the Nazis adopted and used when they said Heil Hitler. So, kind of a little ugly story there or connection. And of course, interestingly enough, not surprising, in World War II in 1942, after we had entered the war, uh, the flag code was changed so that they suggested, let's put our hands on our heart, our hand on our heart, and not give the Nazi, or excuse me, the Bellamy salute. So, History, very interesting uh, uh, history behind the Pledge of Allegiance. Very good. Um, and with your uh, freedom warranty, I think we have a title for the podcast. Did you want to go through the rest of the week uh, day by day? I think we can go in order from there. And uh, and it's interesting that, you know, I mentioned freedom warranty, but it just goes to show how, uh, you know, you, you try to think of all the right ways to say things, but nowhere in that in that uh, op-ed which, uh, or, or a column uh, which I, I originally did in 2011, and then we punched it up this week to, to just you know make it a little bit better. You can always make it better. But I never thought to say freedom warranty, which is exactly what a constitution is. So, uh, so next time we punch it up, we'll have to get that in there. People are talking a lot about the nation's capital and the constitution a bit, too. Uh, yes, with uh, Monday's column, uh, which was uh, called The State of X and Y. You know, I think we got more commentary, uh, commentary, more comments on that commentary than than any I can remember in, in recent times. And it's interesting because when I, we were working on it, you told me you're going to get a lot of uh, comments on this and some pushback, and uh, which I did. You were right. And that's not even the first time. Um, but, you know, part of what I wanted to get out there was that I think the 700,000 people living in Washington, D.C. deserve representation and deserve more representation than they're getting. For instance, they're a territory. They do have a representative or a delegate in Congress. Of course, the delegate uh, rarely can vote on anything. Thing. So it's not exactly the sort of representation you'd want, but it, it, people should realize it's not zero representation either. Um, but it's not enough to me 
And then, of course, the whole rub comes in because giving this city, one city, which is one-eighteenth the size of the smallest state, Rhode Island, in the entire country, that seems like giving them two senators seems like a little bit much. And one of the things that, you know, I suggested probably the, the best thing is to give them, you know, Maryland ceded some of the land to, to create the District of Columbia uh, as the seat of the federal government. And I think there's been longstanding concerns about it being, you know, having a federal area that also is on par with a state or having the federal government within a certain state, they're just, you know, you don't have to have huge problems, but there could be certain issues of jurisdiction and so on that I think people wanted to avoid. And, and that makes some sense to me, too. But I think you can. And this is something that actually, Tim, you had a comment uh, on the page because you wrote a, a good piece on your blog. Uh, we weren't in agreement, but but we're partly in agreement, I think. It wasn't as if we were in, in total disagreement either. But um, it was one of the things that you suggested, you know, these, this, this land could be split between Virginia and, and Maryland. Um, there's all kinds of things that could happen. But one of the things that I think some people took me to task on, and I think not fairly, uh, is it seemed very political. What, what I was suggesting is the alternative to just putting, uh, putting, giving the land back to Maryland and the people so that they could be represented. And presumably Maryland would get the equivalent of something like another congressional district because the population would, would warrant that. Um, but as someone else pointed out in the comments, the representation is limited 435. So if Maryland did pick up another congressional district someplace in the country somebody would lose a congressional district so it you know you can just see that it starts to get a little bit trickier than than you think um another issue that came up was the 23rd amendment which when someone brought it up i realized oh yes but but when we were doing the commentary i had i didn't give it a single thought now, some people have the mind that the 23rd Amendment, what it does basically is it says that the District of Columbia for presidential elections gets at least three votes. It gets at least as many votes for House seats as the smallest population state, and it gets the two votes for senators. So when it comes to presidential elections, because of the 23rd Amendment, Washington, D.C. is treated as a state. Uh, and so some people said, well, you, to, to make D.C. a state, you'd have to amend the Constitution. And who knows what, what different attorneys might say. If you read the amendment, I don't think that's true. You do. States would want to do something not to give whatever's left of the district three electoral votes, I think. And so there would be a move to amend the Constitution. But you could make Washington, D.C. state without amending the constitution you just would have a you'd have a real problem with how the electoral college is set up uh that would bother any reasonable person until you did fix it with that constitutional amendment but uh but and of course your idea uh i think 
could could make sense to split it. But however you do it, to me, the bottom line, uh, and then we kind of talk about some of the comments. And, I, and, and Tim, I'd love you to kind of give your perspective on this, too. Uh, but I think any way you do it, having 700,000 people in a in a, a geographic place where they don't have real representation, equal representation is a problem and you want to avoid it. You don't want to give them extra super duper, you know, uh, more than equal representation, but you want to be, uh, I think you want to get them something. And interestingly enough to me, Democrats could easily, I think, get an agreement to put those folks into Maryland or Virginia or both and get representation or to make some deal, as I suggested, you could solve another problem, which is the 21 counties in Northern California that want to form the state of Jefferson. And their objection is that they're in a state that is dominated by urban areas of millions and millions of people. And yet their rural area that has no way to have any significant voting power and so that they frankly get left out of the political conversation constantly. And so they want their own state. And, and which jumps back to, you know, a lot of people look at the idea that I would say, Hey, why not give Jefferson a state and give those people the representation they want and make DC a state. I'm not sure that's the best approach. I kind of like putting DC back and, and, uh, dealing with these issues in, in a, a different way. But I think the idea that you would have to make a political deal to add states and new senators is to me not terribly offensive just because I don't think there's any way now, in the past, in the future, that you're ever going to get these sorts of very politically impactful things done without taking politics into account. And I think in some ways, you know, a lot of the, of the uh, value of our founders and the Constitution and the system of government they set up, even though 200 years plus we can find a lot of problems that we wish maybe had done slightly differently. But one of the things they did is to recognize political power to recognize ambition, to recognize the world as it is, and try to create mechanisms that take that into account, that use and that 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 use branches that want to, you know, take power to hold each other in check. It always hasn't always worked out great, but in other words, they gave a tremendous amount of thought to that. And I think we shouldn't be too surprised that. There's going to be some politics involved in adding states or senators because of the impact they'll have politically. Well, that certainly makes sense. I mean, there is going to be politics involved. Uh, I guess my real interest in this is that if we're going to start redivvying up sections of the country, then maybe we should have a policy about that and that we should start it in a more broad way. I think I mentioned in my piece that I think the New York City needs to be moved off of the state of New York 
and Cook County in Illinois needs to be moved out of Illinois. It's really doing a great deal of damage to Illinois. There are people leaving Illinois uh, just simply because they can't take the politics that are basically driven by Chicago. And you've mentioned separation movements in, uh, elsewhere. Uh, my favorite is in the one in my state, which is they, they want to make Liberty State, which is a terrible title, by the way. I, I never want a state called Liberty. That's just that's just e- almost evil. Uh, but Somehow bound to fall short. It is. It is. Uh and anyway, and then there's the uh, there are people in Eastern Oregon. I mean, that was an Eastern Washington thing. This uh, thing I want to call it Adams. If we have Washington, I think we need Adams. But I think there actually needs to be more. Even in my state, I think that the King County region and probably the counties directly north of it need to branch off and form a new state, uh, so that there would be three states where once there was one. But there's even more interesting is is the proposal in Eastern Oregon, where many of the people there, or at least some enough to ma- start making a petition, uh, want to break off the rural Eastern Oregon counties and join with Idaho. And that would be quite parallel to the idea of moving uh, much of Washington, D.C. to Maryland or Maryland and Virginia. And so maybe what we need to do is have a real big political move to do all these things at once. I don't know if it's possible. It sounds like a lot of work. Well, and we'll get to we get to this too. Uh, uh, but I think I think it is a ton of work. And to me, after you got through with all that work, you would still have a system that is just fundamentally deficient in representation. And uh, um, we will we'll talk in a minute about more representative being better and how to deal with that problem. Uh, but it, it, it is the sort of thing that I believe in self-determination. I think people ought to be able to change the way they're situated. If they think there's a, a better way, if the, if the folks in, you know, suburban, uh, uh, Washington state or rural Washington state want their own place or the state of Jefferson in Northern California, you know, there's some argument to, to be made from urban and rural that there'd be a lot of changes there. And, and of course, some of them might be problematic because the urban areas are going to be much wealthier than the than the rural areas. But but all of that, I think, uh, can be dealt with, as you say, if there are some fundamental rules, some some. And, and I think one of those rules is you want everyone to be represented Uh but I also think that part of the difficulty that people don't always recognize is that we talk a lot about democracy. We don't talk as much about republicanism. And, and maybe I have this somehow wrong, but I view the structure of our government in lots of ways to be not democratic, but republican. Uh, term limits, for instance, is a republican type idea that you limit power. Now, it's also been passed democratically as anything that's going to take effect as law in this country would have some democratic antecedent. Uh, is that right? Yeah. And, uh, and, and so, you know, that's, that's uh, to me, the state structure. I have, a, I have a lot of liberal friends who see that, well, we ought to be totally democratic 
And the fact that Wyoming has two senators and California has two senators is not one man, one vote equal and should be changed. And one, from just a philosophic standpoint, I don't think it's such a terrible thing to have a country split into smaller units and to give those units some autonomy and some power, because then you allow people to move to different places that could be different and they can choose and people can vote with their feet. And as de Tocqueville talked about, uh, the states can be laboratories of democracy. Um, So I don't have a problem with that concept. And I recognize that it may be deficient in some democratic ways, but in Republican ways, I think it's very, very helpful. Um, But the other aspect of that that people don't seem to understand is that's not changeable within the United States of America. And I didn't know this for years and years. Uh, Growing up, I never learned it in school. Uh, But there is one change to our Constitution that is forbidden by the Constitution. And that is to remove the equal suffrage, I think is the way they say it, uh, equal representation maybe, um, of each state in the U.S. Senate. So that the state of Rhode Island is equal to the state of California in the United States Senate. And there's a reason they wrote that in. We can agree or disagree. But when you think about changing that, there's only one way to change it, and that is to dissolve the United States of America. Now, we could reform and, you know, maybe it might might take a couple hours of discussion, uh, but, you know, all 50 states could reform. (laughs) You like that. I don't get you to laugh very often, but I like it. But it's the kind of thing where you would also have to allow states to opt out. You might all of a sudden have a country in New England. And you might have another country west of the Mississippi and the southern states might form a country and the mid, you know, who knows? But it's it's uh, and if people want to go down that path, I can I can understand some people may want to. I don't think it makes a lot of sense. Um, but if it if we do, you have to do it legally. And that means that any state could opt out of the union and you are, in effect, dissolving the union. Um, that's not true with any other amendment that you would make to the Constitution, but that particular amendment is uh, forbidden in the Constitution. It reminds me a little bit, though, also of the uh, the guarantee that the Constitution gives to that every state shall be a republic. And I'm not sure what that actually means in practice, but I think it does mean something. It, it, it does mean something. And, and they, they, they don't say it will be a republic, but a republican form of government, that they guarantee a republican form of government. And I should know, I, I wish I had a better historical understanding of how the, the whole term republican grew and, and, and had a more full understanding of it. But it, it, um, it does. That's been brought up numerous times. For instance, it was brought up in Colorado when they passed uh, the Taxpayer Bill of Rights that required that any tax increase get a vote of the people uh, or that any spending increase beyond a certain amount, you know, inflation plus population control without, you know, would have to get a vote of the people and could not 
you couldn't spend that extra money without a vote of the people. And the lawsuit in federal court said that this means Colorado doesn't have a Republican form of government, meaning that somehow their representative system was not functioning in a free way. And of course, I look at that and I think, you've got some kind of crazy idea about what republicanism and freedom and uh, is all about because we have a right to establish a government that we can then check up on. And the idea that the voters would decide something directly and that that would somehow destroy a, the Republican form of government, I think is, is a miss, uh, uh, you know, kind of a, a, a mistake in, view of what republicanism is all about, small-r republicanism. But but that it has never really gotten any traction in federal court, not in that case, thank goodness, or in others. So it, it does seem to be at this stage one of those kind of throwaway things that, you know, we're, we're guaranteeing you're going to have basically a free society. But it would be interesting if there was a case at some point that defined it in some real way for our kind of judicial system. We have a Ninth Amendment that basically means nothing right now because it's not almost never used. I mean, there is yeah. one or two small little elements where it's 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 uh, mentioned in, in in case law and constitutional law, but I don't. That's about it. Uh, really, your Wednesday piece is a follow up to this piece, and so maybe we should go right into the Wednesday piece and skip over Tuesday and come back to it. That, that sounds good because it really is. Uh, I alluded to it uh, when more is better. And we're saying more, there's a lot of more and less in this. We're saying more, meaning more representatives. And having more representatives leads to more representation, which is wonderful. It also leads to more representatives, which could be equivalent to politicians, which, of course, the first blush of most people is not so wonderful. Uh, there is, and a lot of polls show this around the country, different places. There's been talk of, you know, reducing the size of the legislature. Years ago, the only initiative that uh, has ever passed in Illinois' completely Byzantine initiative process uh, is one to reduce the size of the legislature. I think it was a big mistake. Uh, love Pat Quinn, who was actually the guy behind it, and one of my favorite Democrats, but uh, that was a, a mistake, and it's uh, around the country, you have different places where they've suggested having smaller legislatures, and the the idea is we'll somehow save money. The critical dynamic in a representative democracy, we have a constitutional republic that functions as a representative democracy. We have representatives, no direct democracy whatsoever, unfortunately, at the federal level. We do have it elsewhere, but not at that level. So it's a completely, it's democratic means, completely representative. So if you don't have people actually representing you, if somehow the, the relationship between the person going to Congress or the state legislature to argue your interest and you is not connected, that's not a good relationship. All of a sudden, our whole system of government is in trouble. And let me suggest our whole system of government is in trouble because that relationship is in deep, deep trouble. And I think the biggest reason it's in trouble 
is because we have congressional districts that on average are well over 700,000 people to a district. And what that means is to run for office in that district, you have to be able to reach out to 700,000 people. Well, that's expensive. And so it tends to make money more important. You can't go knock on all the doors, no matter how much energy you have. That's a lot of doors. And so you got to do TV ads and mail and everything else. And these huge districts amplify the importance and the power of special interests because they write big checks and because they are already organizing to mobilize big people, big numbers. Because you got to reach big numbers. If you, if my experience and one of the ways that I've just seen this up front and, and just feel it in my bones, the only place that we were able to get congressional term limits through a legislature was in New Hampshire, where their house is 400 members. New Hampshire's house is 400 people. It's almost as big as the U.S. house. But instead of 700,000 plus size districts, <clears throat> their average district is a little over 3,000 people. That means if seven people call you over the course of a 24-hour period to talk about, you know, House Bill 27, all of a sudden you care about House Bill 27 because everybody's talking about it. Because those seven people represent a lot more. And that's out of 3,000 people. You can't afford to lose them. If you get seven calls or 27 or maybe 70 in California where you're House district is half a million people. Your Senate district's a million people. That call just does not mean the same thing. That constituent does in practical, political, electoral terms. And let me just depress you. That is the way folks in every state legislature and in Washington, D.C. think. And even the ones who can get beyond that thought going through their head all the time. Everybody thinks that way. And, and so you have a different level of representation in New Hampshire than you do in California or in a lot of other states where you have districts that are 250,000 people or 100,000. And so one of the things that, that I think would make the biggest change in the way we are governed and would restore some semblance of representation, real representation, would be to have districts that are 100,000 or less. I'd like them to be about 50,000. But of course, you're talking 4,000 some odd members. You could have districts that were about a, a little under 200,000. I believe you're under 2,000 members of Congress. But of course, once you do that, then there are other things you are probably going to want to do. You're not going to want 2,000. You're not going to want to build a huge new capital. You're not going to want to build all kinds of new infrastructure in Washington, D.C. You're going to want these people to vote from home. You're going to want them to meet in Washington for very short periods of time to get to know each other, to discuss, to take testimony. You're going to want to use technology. I mean, remember that it wasn't twenty. It was a couple of decades ago that it took a major revolution in the country to get rid of, you know, the, the folks in the Congress taking ice around to every office 
as if we lived in a time in which there wasn't an ice maker anywhere. This is how, you know, Washington doesn't innovate until a hundred years beyond the rest of us for the most part. So it would require that they start to do some things to use technology. But the best thing of all, uh, well, maybe not the best, the best thing of all would be the fact that your call is going to be more important. Your opinion is going to be more important than it used to be. The next best thing is that they are going to cast votes from their own districts with you and I hanging around instead of other politicians and lobbyists and the whole Washington press corps and the whole apparatus of, of apparatchiks uh, hanging out. So it's night and day difference in that way. Anyway, I think this makes the most difference of any reform I can think of. And I would do almost anything to get term limits implemented. I love the initiative process. There's all kinds of reforms we need. I love them all. But at the core of our whole system is representation. And it's broken, and it's broken largely because these districts are so big that the average person need not apply. And we end up with representatives who are an elite and who basically, you know, they fly, they fly into town every once in a while to be with us, but they're not one of us. And that's, you know, that's a death knell for a representative democracy. Which is one reason that uh, breaking many of the states into pieces might help is that they could increase the representation in the process. Yes. Yes. For if LA County were its own state, I mean, it's a huge town and LA County could be, or that in orange or that in the, the, the one of the other neighboring counties could become LA a state. It's 12 million people or something. It's 5 million. It's, it's millions and millions of people. It'd be bigger than many, many states. Right. So you just, if, if you break it down by counties or in New York boroughs, if you get those things done uh, as separate states, that the the number the remaining representation in the the state that's you know that's the bigger part of the state that has less people or has not as concentrated a population of people, their representation might go up. Uh, I mean, it would it would allow for that kind of thing, kind of naturally to flow. That's one of the reasons I actually like the idea of splitting up the states. Yeah, I I think that that's a positive. I think it's very very tough to do. And largely because of the Senate and all the political concern that a U.S., you know, two U.S. Senate seats are just so valuable. Um, but I think you're right. And um, it, you, you don't have to split them up to, you know, have smaller districts. But, you know, size does matter. And, and I think you want to have things as small as is reasonable. I mean, you don't want, you know, to make seven states out of L.A. County, but you might want to make one state out of it. Or you might want to take the three or four counties around that and make a, a state. There's there's different ways to do it, but it would help to have smaller. I just I, I would put the emphasis on that that concept of representation and the districts being really small, for instance, if you were to split California into, you know, a state for every few counties, but were to actually increase the size of the districts, and you could do that. I mean, right now, I believe there are five, uh, is it, and this is why I can't think of whether it's 5 million or 12 million, and 
it's either 5 million in LA County and 12 supervisors or five supervisors and 12 million or something like that. But anyway, you know, if, if you create a separate state there and you continue to have districts that are that huge, you're not going to get any better representation. And so that's the, that's the reason that I think the, the size of those districts comes even before the size of the uh, geopolitical unit overall. One of the great joys of doing these uh, recordings remotely from one end of the country to another is that sometimes the system fails, the technology fails. And so we had to stop in the middle and come back an hour later and finish the job. So we go back to Tuesday, the rates that matter. And I asked Paul about it. You know, I think this was really a piece that as we did it, you know, it seemed like a lot of other folks were noticing the same thing. And I, I say that I'm, you know, not, not so much in the media, although there too, but just in real life. Uh, my tennis buddy mentioned this to me, you know, uh, in between sets, uh, we get to talking and, and you know, there. What, what the rates that matter were about is the fact that when it comes to COVID-19 and this pandemic, it seems like the goalposts keep changing and that, you know, we're, we're talking, you know, we're, we're, we're talking about flatten the curve and the whole idea being to push some of these cases off into the future so that the hospitals aren't overrun. That's the reason that we shelter in place is to just flatten that curve. We don't think we can shelter in place a few weeks and, you know, the virus is gone. If that were the case, this would be over. Um, And, you know, we point out that that, uh, Jeff Tucker uh, had pointed that out in the tweet, that that now everybody's surprised that a few months down the road, there's another, you know, bunch of cases and and the virus is, is there. That was the whole point to flatten the curve. And I think the biggest thing, which uh, Ron Paul, uh, former congressman, Dr. Ron Paul, uh, talked about the fact that all of a sudden, instead of talking about the death counts, the folks who are dying from COVID-19, and that number is decreasing and is not spiking, all of a sudden they're talking about the number of cases, which is spiking. And of course, the more testing you have, uh, you're going to have more cases, and we're go- going to have more cases. I mean, no one knows exactly how this is going to turn out, but we should not be shocked that a virus continues to be a virus, and we should not think that even though there's there's certain um, uh, reasons I think to have some some hope that uh, we might get a vaccine. There's no reason to to think that that's just going to happen in a few months. It's just a matter of course. It's not a matter of course. And we have to come to grips with, do we just shut down society every time we think there may be more cases of this? Because we're going to take what I think is a disaster in shutting down the way we did without. And and we'll we'll get to why the, the problem with shutting down the way we did, the key problem, as I see it. But 
we we can't um, we can't just continue to do that forever. It, it's already already been damaging. But if you do the longer you do that, the more damage. At a certain point, you don't have any stuff anymore because everything is deteriorated, and you've been hiding in your home for the last twenty years. Um, and it will happen before twenty years. The problem with the way that we shut down and the way that we're reopening is that we forgot the lesson of freedom. We forgot the fact that the strength of our society isn't the ability of one person in Washington or one person in your state capital listening to all the experts and making the decision for everybody and flipping the switch. The the brilliance of our, the wisdom of crowds of America is why not allow people to be free? Give us the information, but let the businessman who's ready to reopen and who believes after talking probably to his lawyer and his accountant and his, uh, and his insurance agent, especially that the way they're opening is safe and so on. Let that person open because you want things to be open. And let the person who says, I don't think we're ready yet, not open. And, and this whole time, we should be focused on people who are vulnerable doing the smart things. They have to do it on their own. They can choose to not be smart. Um, and, of course, you know, other folks who are not as vulnerable can be more aggressive and still not be dumb about it. Um, so... But freedom allows people to make billions and trillions and gazillions of small decisions about their own lives with the most knowledge and with a real desire not to die. And so I think we can trust people. Will everyone be perfect? No. But you know what? If you, as we've said several times on, on this podcast, if you just spew orders from on high you know what? Everybody doesn't follow them then either. So anyway, I think that's been a just a huge problem. And of course, what this piece gets at primarily and most importantly um, is that the media likes fear and destruction and, 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 and for some legitimate reasons in the sense that they know people want to tune in more when there's a hurricane or there's a natural disaster or there's a big story and there's emotions. And if there's violence, if there's fires, if there, all of these things have an impact. But I think the other thing that happen, has an impact with our media at this moment in time is that, that they want this to be a disaster for the president of the United States. And I think most people who criticize Trump would, you know, surely they think he can screw things up all on his own. He doesn't need any help. But this is a, I think, such the, the, the most politicized disaster that, that I've, I've witnessed in my lifetime. And I think that there is a desire to push the story in ways that are political. And that's just never a good thing. And the reason, not that the politics doesn't seep into things and people's opinions isn't naturally going to seep into things to a certain extent, but this extent is way beyond accidental. 
and it's continuous. This isn't the only case of it. We have narrative-driven media. Their narratives have political ideologies behind them. There's nothing per se evil or wrong about that unless you hide it, unless you're trying to trick people. And the problem is they're trying to trick people because they do hide it. They do pretend that they're totally objective and that they don't have these narratives. And the other huge, giant problem is I happen to believe that the American people should make the decision. And so it's important that the American people have information flowing all over the place, easy to get and easy to refute. And, and so I want this wide open uh, information system and they want a narrative-driven information system that they have as much power in as possible. And the more that we get the narrative, the less we get the facts. And it makes it tougher and tougher for the American people, if we were ever in a position to make the decision, to have the information we need. Uh, which, of course, then feeds the whole idea that, hey, we, just, we, we can't have all the information. The experts have to decide for us. The experts and the politicians and the attorneys writing the laws and the, they all have to decide for us. And then just to segue to our final script of the week, uh, not in, the, in chronological order, but in, in this podcast order, you go very far along the line of, hey, the experts are all sorted out. People don't know what they're doing. They're not smart enough to know. They're not wise enough to decide. And where do you end up? You end up in China. And unfortunately, as we pointed out in the script, and what did we call oh, Last Bit of Freedom. We'll talk about the title in a minute, but about Hong Kong and the fact that the national security law that uh, was passed in secret in Beijing by the Chinese legislature for this supposedly autonomous city-state of Hong Kong, seven and a half million people, with its own legislature, which of course is not really democratically one man, one vote uh, decided, and in which the leader, the CEO, the chief executive of Hong Kong is handpicked by Beijing. Uh, so it's already a problem, but now they've moved in and basically if you say anything about independence, if you say anything that puts down the Chinese anthem or the Chinese whatever idea they have next, you can be arrested. People have already been arrested. As I pointed out, uh, the first person arrested was arrested wearing this shirt here. He had a, a flag that said Hong Kong independence. And it had in small letters uh, right before Hong Kong independence, it said no to. Now, the letters were small enough that no one could see on the street that it said no to Hong Kong independence. But of course, in court, it's only true that he had a sign that said no to Hong Kong independence. Can you be arrested for having letters that aren't the right size and put in prison for life? And that's basically what's happening. Um, but of course, you can be. You can be. If you live in China, and as a woman pointed out who said, I'm going to be on the street protesting anyway, because I'm a human being who has rights, moving the way that she said it. 
uh, if you go to thisiscommonsense.org and you go to the script, Last bit, uh, bit of Freedom, there's a link. You can go hear her say it. Uh, but she just says that, you know, now China is Hong Kong and Hong Kong is China. And it's sad. It's a very sad day. But she says, I am going to be out here on the street protesting because I'm a human being and I have rights, whether the, the police say so or anybody else says so. Um, but this, what's, what's happening um, has to be seen by the rest of the world because for so long it seems like we have ignored China. We have hoped that the fact that it's growing wealthier uh, and allows certain capitalism, certain markets-driven uh, uh, policies, that it will allow some level of freedom. It doesn't. And in, in effect, what, what has happened is, as was pointed out in the Washington Post in their lead to the story, they, they mentioned um, that basically now the people of Hong Kong can be arrested and put in prison for life for anything they say derogatory about the Chinese Communist Party, just like the 1.4 billion people living in China. And I just think we have to not forget that no matter what happens in Hong Kong, China has 1.4 billion people who are living in the equivalent of any dictatorship any time throughout history, when if you said something against the king, your head is chopped off, that's China today with, with one huge difference. China has a national security state that is just beyond anything George Orwell ever dreamed of. Cameras everywhere. Everyone has their cell phone. The, the state knows what you purchased today. It knows where you've been, who you've talked to. It's, it, you know, when, when I think of, of just how despicable my own government's use of the NSA and of mis purposely, I think, absolutely purposely misinterpreting part of the FISA law uh, same law, the Patriot Act, um, to allow them to scoop up all of our business records, banking, uh, social media, phone records, so on and so on. That's horrible. Well, that's China, you know, just a hundredfold with nothing to hold them back. And no ability for free speech. Free speech has been snuffed out. Now, People in Hong Kong are brave enough to face getting the hell beat out of them and being dragged off to a jail where they're likely to get the hell beat out of them again with no investigation of that, even though that's been one of the main demands that early on this completely peaceful march against extradition to China to be tried in courts that are crooked on trumped up charges, millions go into the streets and police began to be violent before any protesters were defacing anything or doing anything of that sort. And they asked for an investigation. And of course, there's been none. So what's happening in Hong Kong, we 
you know, I don't have any magic wand to, to change it. Um, but one of the things that struck me was Joshua Wong, who a young activist, I think he was like 17 in 2014, which makes him whatever now, uh, but young, uh, was involved in the Umbrella Revolution. And he was out on the street and was protesting and so on. And he's been, he, he was not allowed to run for office because, of course, he's well known enough that he'll get elected. Um, so, you know, he's, he's been in a long battle. He's been arrested several times. But he asked the international community to don't forget Hong Kong and put pressure on China. And, um, and it just it occurred to me, and he mentioned because we need you to help defend our last bit of freedom, uh, which is what we entitled this piece on, on Friday. And I think uh, as we are in Independence Weekend, Independence Day, celebrating freedom in America, um, let's remember that when he asked the international community to help, to stand with Hong Kong, I'm not sure exactly what you can do, what I can do, but let's consider ourselves as individuals not this isn't something our government's doing while we're not paying attention as individuals who are paying attention the whole world is watching let's look for what we can do and um and let's let's uh well that that's it we have to be engaged the other thing about this script uh is i thought afterwards tim that maybe we should have called it too free because I thought the most interesting thing was in the Washington Post article about this. There's a, one of the pro-Beijing city council people in Hong Kong. Um, and, of course, they didn't pass this law. Uh, that was done secretly in, in China and, and imposed on them. But, uh, but he came out and said that, uh, that basically um, this is a good thing, this national security law. Because the problem is Hong Kong has been too free. And that's, I mean, we, we have lived in a world our whole lives, centuries before that. And now as we march into the future, we live in a world where I think we are not free enough as individuals. And we have plenty to fear from governments who are powerful and driven by interests that are not friendly. And then you have part of the world, China, where, uh, and it's not, it's not alone, unfortunately, uh, but where democracy is verboten, uh, where the problem is too much freedom, where the answer is that the state, the experts, the party, big brother, Xi Jinping, should make the decision for all of us. They know best. And that philosophy is enslaving more than a billion people in China, threatening all of their neighbors, including India now through the you know, mountains, Himalayas. Um, but that philosophy is unfortunately alive and well in our own country. 
and we don't need to run around calling people communists or or names of any kind. We need to point out that philosophy and give the rebuttal, and freedom will win. Uh, all over the world, give people a choice between freedom and big government taking care of them, and people are smart enough to choose freedom. We've made mistakes, but as long as we keep making those choices, they make that choice in Hong Kong, and Hong Kong's free. They make that choice. The truth is, I think you could let any place in China vote in a free election, and they'd vote out the, the Chinese Communist Party in a heartbeat. So democracy is not perfect, but we have a, a, a really such a stark difference, I think, in that we have uh, the second most, maybe arguably the most powerful country in the world that hates democracy and hates free speech. And the United States of America is the beacon to the world, to people I've met all over the world who make me kind of feel like, uh, geez, I, you know, I, I can think of all the bad things we've done. And they're thinking of this is where the, the concept of freedom came from a lot of times. This is where the concept of equality came from. This is where dignity for people came from. And we, we ought not to be arrogant that somehow we did all of that, but we ought to take a moment this weekend and appreciate that some people, lots of people, sacrificed lots in wars, not in wars, in agitating and being ridiculed or, or belittled or arrested, um, but lots of people have created this idea that the individual should be free, that the individual and all of us collectively ought to be in charge and not some master over us. And we got lots of disagreements, but boy, let's all celebrate that and, and, uh, and have some fun too. Thank you for tuning in to This Week of Common Sense starring Paul Jacob. My name is Timothy Verkula. You can find me at locofoco.net, at workman.com, and at workman on social media. That's workman with an I, not an O. This Week in Common Sense is the weekend podcast of Paul Jacob, and you can find it on YouTube, as well as in audio form on SoundCloud and via podcatchers such as Apple, Google, and Stitcher. Thank you. Oh, and and I mentioned this was uh, Friday's script. I'm I'm discombobulated this was thursday's script and uh and let let people get a look here i got this from the this shirt free hong kong uh which i don't i don't read uh mandarin chinese not yet uh and and but i understand that's what it says below it too um but i got this from the victims of communism uh memorial foundation i think is the full name uh but they've done a lot about what has been happening in China and what happened in Russia and about all the bodies on, uh, on that sort of thing. And, um, that have been piled up and it can happen again. It happens again every day somewhere in the world. And, uh, we should be darn glad that it doesn't happen more and we should be working to protect, you know, anytime I think about our 
history, at least from the ideals, um, which are so beautiful. And I think about how terrible the world is. It does, you know, and, and how we, we have it better than, than so many people. It does make me feel really good to be an American, but it also makes me feel a duty, not to anybody else other than my own heart, but it makes me feel a duty to me to do what I can to keep it and expand it. And I think, um, I think any of the people throughout history who have struggled and, and done so much for freedom, they're not looking for us to pat them on the back. They're dead. Uh, they wanted freedom. They wanted it expanded. And for us to sit around arrogantly like, hey, we, we have it all. We don't. It's a constant struggle. And um, and we should be part of that struggle. <laughs>